Episode number 11 of the Meet Kevin Report. We are going to hop over and listen to some comments here, starting with Ray Dalio talking about how people aren't paying attention to the long-term debt cycle. Let's start this. This is live, and then we'll get to coverage. Right, okay. Then you bring things down. Okay, now in this, each one of these cycles, you bring them down a little bit differently. What, we're, what we have here is that there was quite a lot of bubbles in this. So you could see which sectors are going down. You could see which stocks are going down, right? You see the tech stocks, you see, the, you see real estate going down. Um, residential real estate goes down, but doesn't mean that their families are hurt because the household sector is in a better financial position than it ever was because it, it has received a lot of money. And also, they're benefiting, you know, when we say inflation and you say wages are going up, you see there's their sector, they're, they're basically benefiting. So you're seeing this type of contraction. So it's going down and we're having something co close to a stag, let's say a stagflation, meaning maybe three and a half. I think you're going to see inflation come down to this and then because of the way it's calculated, it'll go up a bit. And so you see that kind of an, an environment with something close to maybe a 1% growth rate, right. something okay. like that, right? Can I just ask you a very baseline question though? Yeah. Right now, this market, depending on how, what you think this market is, doesn't it actually believes that inflation's coming down, really coming down. I think that the, um, yeah, I, and, I and they don't believe Jay Powell to some degree. Well, I don't think they believe. I think what you're referring to is they don't believe what's in the curve, or, or uh, in other right. words, what's in the curve is a significant easing. Yep. Right. What's and what uh, Jay Powell is saying is steady. Right. Believe steady. Mm -hmm. You're saying believe steady. Believe You're saying steady. believe what Jay Powell I, I, is saying. Uh, right. I, uh, I think because it's the nature of a yield curve and the discounting thing, uh, slope of the yield curve, because both markets are trading. So when you have a bond market trading with a short rate, then you can get that curve. It's not necessarily because everybody smartly plots that out. So I don't think um, I don't think you're going to see an easing that is built into the curve. So that means that you're going to see. I, look, I'm not. I'm, I'm never sure I'm right, but I, I think you're not going to see an easing that's equivalent to the building. Believe, I think believe Jay Powell. There's no good reason. Even if you look at the bond price, let's say bond pro, uh, bond yields. 3.4, 3.5. Let's say you had a 2% inflation. That still means only a 1.4% real rate, which I don't think. So when you look at the bond rate, the bond rate looks like a, a low rate. Um, of course, there are big credit spreads on that. But anyway, so I, I think that you're not going to see the easing. I, I would say that that's probably the easiest, one of the easiest, safest bets that you're not going to see that happen. I don't know. Maybe wow. I'm wrong, but I don't see. I that's that's a big anti-trend bet there. We'll talk about it. That means that um, that's not built into the curve. That's a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 what do you want, a headwind. So that's how, a headwind. how do you think about trades that take advantage of that discrepancy in view? That that we sh will be higher, if you believe that you will, be, you believe that we will be higher for longer, even though the markets do not. That's right. The markets are positioned for that latter scenario. So what are the trades that take advantage of that discrepancy? Well, so it's your just... Your short tech, your... I mean, well, I've, it's the SMP. pure play is straight on the yield curve. Okay. In yeah. other words, you can play the pure play straight on the yield curve. I wouldn't... Um, of course, interest rate changes have impacts on other markets and so on. 
But if, if you look at the relative pricing now of, let's say, cash, let's start with cash, and then you go out on the yield curve and you look at that, cash is relatively attractive in relationship to even to equities. But I, when I say equities, there's such a range of the type of equities that we're dealing with. And then we're, uh, so uh, if you want the pure play, you're in, you're in that pure play. Um, I think the interesting question um, has to do with the areas that have cracked and then passing them through to the private markets. Because what's happened in, um, you know, the public versions of them are down. Then if you take the private market, venture capital, uh, and um, you got a problem there. You, you've got the mark-to-market question. Uh, and then a lot of these companies, um, then they, uh, they don't have enough cash. And then if they have another down round, another down round is really yeah. a problem for not only them as, a com- as their companies, but also for those who are holding them, venture capitals and private right. equity. That's a big one. We're going to talk about that. Big warning. Um, problem there. Um, so that's hard to figure out exactly how that's going to play out, but that's going to be a sort of stagnant thing. But I think that this type of recession is not a bad recession. It's a lot less uh, bad than I thought it would be because of the fact of how it's distributing and, and, and shrinking that credit. At the same time, though, we have a real issue for the United States debt in the world because we're selling all this, uh, selling all this debt. You, you know, if you look at wealth instead of GDP, wealth is a much better indicator of, of things. Um, GDP is like looking at revenue. Um, how much did you sell? We have borrowed a lot of money, okay? And now we're having a problem selling that money around the world. Right. And, we're, and it's also happening that uh, this political situation, geopolitical situation, is weakening the demand for U.S. bonds. Well, we just were, were talking about, you know, what a previous Fed chair called the conundrum of lower long-term rates. That means there's a lot of demand for longer-term treasuries at the moment anyway. Um, and, you know, the Fed balance sheet's down by half a trillion dollars from the peak. And here we are not worried too much about about financing things. Why do you think that's becoming a critical issue? Well, because uh, if you're still looking at the amount of deficits that we're running, right? If you're still, at, at, and that's a current account, both, both the trade deficit, you still have to sell a lot of bonds mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. And for a variety of reasons, um, besides that being a lot, and it's being monetized, okay, so who's the other side of the balance sheet? The other side is the balance sheet has been monetization, except for just the most recent moment. And that just even chronologically is going to worsen. Then you... That generally means the U.S., right? ...playing a role. In other words, sanctions have caused a lot of countries to be concerned that they could possibly be sanctioned. And now the the split is um, there's an internationalization of the RMB. A lot of um, trade and capital flows is in RMB, and China has never chosen to denominate right. a net RMB. You're now seeing that happen. So the amount of uh, if you look at let's say the proportion of not only reserves but sovereign wealth funds uh, denominated in dollars, it's a lot. That, that is tilting in a certain direction. And then if you look at things like, um, you know, the question is, will we deal with that debt? Right. And, and, and what, there is the debt ceiling. Um, I mean, everybody believes we'll get through the debt ceiling. 
But the question is, if you get through the debt ceiling, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? It just right. means a pile more debt. So the supply demand... Okay, I'm going to pull off Ray Dalio here for a moment because I have to say, I've been listening to his... We're in the ninth inning of, uh, of an economic expansion for like the last four years, and now he's saying we're halfway through the 13 inning cycle. I, 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 don't, I don't really know where we are anymore. We went from cash is trash to cash is great. And I'm not saying you can't change your mind. I think it's a good idea to change your mind. Heck, I change my mind all the time. <laughs> uh, but I want to break down a little bit of what Ray Dalio is uh, arguing here. Ray Dalio is arguing that he does not actually think the Treasury market will soften the way it has been, or in other words, will continue a long trend. Now, that's really interesting because it has big implications, especially for the real estate market and potentially the stock market. After all, if treasury yields go down, consider this for a moment. Treasury yields go down. What does treasury yields going down mean? What it means is more people are interested in stocks because you're not making as much money on treasury yields. What does it mean when treasury yields go down? Real estate goes up, right? So yields down, generally, you can get a higher return then with lower yields from stocks and real estate because mortgage rates are lower, supporting higher asset prices. Ray Dalio is making the argument that he doesn't actually think we're going to see a substantial easing in the treasury market maybe any further than it has already eased, given that after yesterday it dropped about 11 basis points on, for example, the 10-year treasury. And we've been on a pretty clear trend down. I mean, I've got a chart up here of the 10-year treasury basically peaking out right around mid-October. Uh, that's uh, that's right when we bought uh, a crap load of treasuries, about $21.5 million worth of treasuries for uh, house hack. And, uh, and, and, and we got this, this solid trend down in uh, in treasury yields, which means if you uh, bought bonds over here, those bonds are more valuable today than they were then, which is great. Uh, you're locking in higher yields. But anyway, Ray Dalio doesn't actually think this trend will continue. He thinks, hey, you know what? Look, if you're investing in the 10-year treasury, you're only getting rewarded even at 2% inflation, somewhere around 1.3% for investing in treasuries. That actually makes having cash, pretty desirable. So he's actually now talking up trash, talking up the idea that yields will stay high, but even as inflation is 2%, yields will still not be high enough. And uh, if anything, they should go higher. Very, very different opinion uh, than uh, certainly what I have or what, what a lot of folks I see have. But uh, it doesn't mean he's wrong, but let's listen in. It's definitely unique. We'll go back to him. Probable things. Well, what happened was, um, yeah, so let me take the sequence. Uh, just before there was uh, the summer, and we were looking at the Ukraine, the United States was thinking about sanctions on China and how China would operate. And then there was a lot of studying about what would the implications of sanctions be. And the implications of sanctions would be economically disastrous. If you wanted to see inflation, it was what came out of Russia would be nothing. So there was a hesitancy, and then Pelosi went over there. And when Pelosi went over there, that was the bottom, in my opinion, that was the bottom of the, of the relationship at, the, at that moment. And, and China had to do a demonstration. It was, yeah. a, a, and, and then since that point, there's... He's talking about Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan last August. 
please don't take it that I'm either I'm confident about right. any of these things. I, I, as I say, maybe there's a one in three chance over the next 10 years of those kinds of things, depending on how things transpire. And that's a very dangerous thing. The fact that, the, it, that I can say that and everybody almost can, is living that is causing big changes in flows. It's causing big changes in who, what businesses are operating where. Businesses are leaving those places. Yeah. We should talk about the good places. India's benefiting. Indonesia's yeah. benefiting. Right. Um, ASEAN countries are benef benefiting. Um, Saudi Arabia and um, uh, UAE is right. benefiting. So you're seeing these other places. You have to see how wealth is shifting, right? Wealth. Right. If, if you just look at how wealth is shifting, you're seeing big increases in some places and big decreases. Right. And I ask if you're He's not wrong. You are seeing high net worth individuals flow their money out of China. Uh, a lot more outflows than inflows you're getting into China because people are worried about those geopolitical issues. So you are seeing, uh, uh, you know, even Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Singapore, Philippines, uh, all, all benefiting from these outflows from China. Needs to be more spending than we have income. And that's a problem, right? Um, governments run the same as your household or um, a business. In well, the problem is they don't. So Ray Dalio is making again the argument that, hey, well, you know, you should balance uh, your your debt to your spending. Like, don't spend more than uh, than you make. And and that traditionally is very accurate for a personal uh, individual, for a household, uh, or for a business. You got to balance uh, uh, balance the books, so to speak. But in America, we have this crazy phenomenon where basically we could continue to print money and uh, borrow more money. And as long as people trust the dollar, the house of cards keeps building and it's politically beneficial because it continues growing GDP. What Ray Dalio is basically warning of is in the future, the house of cards will collapse. And he's not wrong. There has never been a currency in the history of civilization that has not collapsed. So in the very long term, he will be right. Eventually, the dollar will lose and the debt will have to be repaid or it'll just all collapse and we'll start over with a new currency. He's not wrong. But is that this year or next year? Probably not. Is it this decade? Probably not. Is it after that? Eventually, yeah. We invest nearly as much in, in the basic things like great education and making sure that certain areas do, right. do not have conditions that are substandard conditions. And right. so to invest in those things that are going to produce productivity. Ed education's a good thing. Infrastructure's a good thing. Other, right. other things. It's a, it, it, this is part of a cycle, a big cycle right. that has happened over and over and over again, where you know you, you, the productivity right. goes down. The in, in that cycle, can I just ask, there's an there's a op-ed today uh, from Charlie Munger. Mm -hmm. We always talk to you about crypto. I don't know if you saw this op-ed. He effectively said that crypto should be outlawed. And you cited communist China as having taken a wise move. By doing that? Yes. You have been, I believe, a supporter of Bitcoin. Uh, or at least uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, curious, crypto curious. Okay. Where, where, where do you, has anything changed for you? In uh, that? Um, uh, yeah, just to everybody, let me state what I believe about crypto and with um, Bitcoin and what I've, you know, pretty much. Uh, Always, be. I think it's been, you know, quite amazing that for 12 years it's accomplished. It's, but I think it has no relation to anything. Okay, in other words, it moves. It has no relation. It's a tiny thing that gets a disproportionate attention. You know, the value of crypto, uh, crypt, 
Uh, Bitcoin is less than a third of the value of Microsoft stock. You could go into industries, but right. biotech and many other industries are more interesting than Bitcoin. It's not going to be an effective money. It's not an effective storeholder wealth. It's not an effective medium of exchange. But we are in a world in which money as we know it is in jeopardy, right? We are printing too much, and mm -hmm. it's not just the United States, all the reserve currencies, the, what's going on in Euroland, what's going on in yen. And so in that world, the question is, what is money and how is that going to operate? So when we look at something like China's renminbi, and then you take the digital renminbi, um, I think you're going to see that become more and more a thing. So when, when things start to open up in an evolutionary way, people are going to start to say, where is my safe uh, storeholder wealth? And as you have China denominate more of its trade in renminbi, then naturally uh, those who are going to hold renminbi, if Saudi Arabia sells oil in renminbi and then buys things from China in renminbi, when they get it, they're going to hold more renminbi. It's going to be a higher percentage of their. And so um, I think the question over the next uh, number of years is really what is money, not just as a medium of exchange, but a storehold of right. wealth. That sounds like a argument for Bitcoin of Bitcoin sorts. or for some of digital currency. Bitcoin? No, Maybe. I think if you, want a, if you want a digital currency, you have to deal something different. I don't think that the stable coins are good uh, uh, because then you're getting a fiat currency again. I think that what you really would, what would be best is an inflation-linked um, coin. Right. In other words, something where basically you would say, okay, this is going to give me buying power because every individual wants, what do they want? They want to secure their buying power mm -hmm. if, right. if you want to save. Now, if you put it in Bitcoin, it goes like this. Who knows what happens? Right. If you put it into something, the closest to, thing to that is an inflation index bond and so on. But if you, put, uh, if you created a coin that says, okay, this is buying power that I know I could save in and put my money in um, over a period of time and then I can transact in anywhere, I think that that would be a good coin. But you, so I think you're going to see probably the development of coins that you haven't seen that probably will be, end up being attractive, uh, viable coins. I don't think Bitcoin is it. So I want to go back to the markets before we let you go. <laughs> it sounded before like you thought cash is, cash is king right now out of, out of all the choices that you can make. Um, where do you think the stock market is? Do you think that we have priced in what could be a, you know, a recession or what is a recession? Did we see the worst of it in October? Where are we right now in terms of valuation? I think that, uh, first of all, when we talk about pricing in the recession, I think the first thing you have to do is you've priced in the discount rate. So what has happened, the most important thing is you've changed the discount rate. Every investment is a lump sum payment for a future cash flow, and you put in the discount rate. So now you've moved the discount rate. That discount rate is not going to be materially changing, right? So we're not going to go back to the old discount rate, and prices are not going to go back to where they were. Then you start to have the knock-on effect on the economy. I mean, to me, it looks like on, on, on that that, you, you know, you have something um, substandard growth, right? You have that, uh, uh, when we call it a recession, we have, I can't tell you, is it 1% growth or something like that, but it's a fairly stagnant growth that is not hurting the household sector as much as you would think in terms of that. So that becomes tolerable for longer, which I, I think keeps that. So then you look at the, the markets as a whole. The markets as a whole look um, 
Um, they, they were obviously, um, I would say, the interest rate changes were obviously had to come. The impact on the other markets had to come. They have come. They have right. been into the price. So now you're going to have probably a tightening or a tighter monetary policy than existed. And that's a net negative mm -hmm. for the stock market, but not in such a big number that it's like a big bearish thing. So when I look at the market as a whole, I would say, okay, well, now it seems closer to fairly priced, probably still a bit high, given that whole picture. Right. Ray Dalio, uh, we need to thank you. You got to come on back because I want to hear more about uh, your new life post uh, post uh, co CIO role, but uh, we're out of time. But thank you for uh, an education this morning. Thank you, Great to see you. Thanks. All right, so let's give a little bit of a recap here of what we just heard from Ray Dalio, as well as talk a little bit about crypto. So, Ray Dalio no longer thinks that cash is trash. Ray Dalio now actually thinks that cash has a substantial uh, potential opportunity premium over really any other kind of investment, and that's mostly because Ray Dalio thinks that U.S. Treasury yields should remain high and are likely to remain high. This is exactly the opposite of the trend that we've been seeing in Treasury yields. Treasury yields have been falling since about October and mid-November when we sort of had a double peak on the 10-year Treasury. They've been straight down since then. We peaked out around four and a quarter. Now we're sitting at under four and a half. 10-year Treasury yield at the time of this recording sitting at about 3.38 after dovish comments from Jerome Powell. So, so far, this trend is inappropriate to suggest that, well, uh, Treasury yields will actually stabilize. I think this is because Ray Dalio doesn't really believe Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve are going to cut interest rates and instead believes that you've got to keep interest rates high. Maybe you shouldn't actually extend the debt ceiling because, after all, you should operate the government like a business or a household which on one hand makes sense. That's relatable to us. We shouldn't spend more than we make. But on the other hand, the reason politicians spend more than we make is because it promotes growth. And when we promote growth, we are not in a recession. Businesses grow. People flourish. Business, uh, businesses are able to expand. People are able to start new businesses. Households build their wealth. People are able to buy a home to live in rather than renting for their entire life, which I'm a big fan of obviously building your wealth through investing in real estate. Uh, and so governments are clearly incentivized to actually, yes, spend more uh, than they make. That's why our debts go up. Now, eventually that'll collapse. So that, again, there's been no currency in history that has survived. In other words, they all collapse. It all ends up being a house of cards. Is that a house of cards that we have to worry about within the next few years? Probably not, because the dollar is still one of the strongest, probably, I would, well, I think arguably the strongest currency in the world. And if anything, decisions by the Bank of England today, where the Bank of England is expecting uh, a, uh, a recession, a mild recession, but they are expecting a recession out of G7 countries, Statista shows that uh, the United Kingdom might actually be the only G7 country to fall into a recession. But what did the Bank of England do today? The Bank of England actually hiked rates by 50 basis points, uh, hiked rates, right, which were not fully priced in leading to a rally in the pound, uh, uh, the pound sterling. And the reason you get this and the reason it matters to the dollar is because the more other countries, everything's relative. You have to remember that when it comes to currencies, okay? The collapse of the dollar would probably be the last collapse of currency you would expect. You would expect the Turkish lira with over 60% inflation to collapse way before the U.S. dollar. 
obviously, right? We would expect a collapse of many other currencies well before we would expect. We would expect a collapse of the euro before we would expect a collapse of the US dollar. But when we look at this relatively and we consider that if the United Kingdom is the only one expecting a recession, uh, as uh, the Bank of England continues to fight high inflation and they continue to hike more than expected, what ends up happening? Well, you end up driving up the yield of gilts, which are basically treasury bonds in the United Kingdom. And when you drive up the yield for those, you actually lower the demand uh, for, for uh, uh, you know, treasuries uh, and, and the dollar and other uh, bonds around the world. And on one hand, when you lower demand uh, for bonds over here and you potentially lower prices here, on one hand, maybe Ray Dalio could be right in that, okay, well, if you have less demand for bonds in America, yields are going to stay a little elevated because higher yields will help increase uh, uh, will help increase demand, essentially. Uh, and uh, if rates are expected to be even higher in the United Kingdom, you might get less demand in America and more demand in, in sort of the United Kingdom or other countries. Now, the reason that matters, it's basically to say that in the short term, yeah, maybe we'll see some stability around the threes. But here's where, in my opinion, Ray Dalio's argument falls apart for treasury bonds in America, which is really important because as treasury yields fall, we expect stocks to rise and we expect real estate to rise again. Here's where, in my opinion, his argument falls apart. It falls apart as soon as we start realizing that, yes, indeed, the United Kingdom is going into a recession as inflation hopefully gets stamped out of the economy, much like we've seen that disinflation process start here in America. If we start seeing that also happen in the United Kingdom, we'll probably start seeing international yields for all bonds uh, start falling. And that's because as inflation goes away, now more folks can start buying U.S. bonds again. And that's exactly what people are doing. And what does that do? It drives up the price and lowers the yield. Eventually, that'll happen in the United Kingdom as well. You get a temporary boost in yields because you're seeing higher rates than expected from the Bank of England. But that too will go away eventually. So the long story here of where I'm going with, with this inflation fight is as inflation falls throughout the rest of the world, we do expect yields to across the entire world slowly fall. And I think that kind of counters uh, some of what Ray Dalio is suggesting that uh, we're not going to end up seeing yields go down. In my opinion, the only way you don't end up seeing yields go down is if inflation continues to run hot, which don't get me wrong, it could absolutely pop up again. But I'm not convinced about Ray Dalio's argument that yields are going to stay high uh, and that maybe it's better to be in cash versus being exposed to some of these yields. Now, for an institution, treasury bonds might be a great way to farm 35 to 4% yields. For an individual, I think one of the best ways you could farm yields right now, quite frankly, is just looking at companies like Wealthfront or Robinhood. Hashtag not sponsored, uh, but uh, you know these here are companies that are offering you four to four and a quarter percent. I think SoFi is at three point seven five or four percent. Why would you bother with Treasury bonds if you can get FDIC insurance up to five hundred k or more? throwing your money into one of those accounts. I think Wealthfront or uh, and even Robinhood potentially lets you get FDIC insurance up to a, a million dollars or more by basically splitting your money up amongst other individual banks. So that way you're sort of getting 500K at each bank, depending on how many times they do it is how much FDIC insurance you can get. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that Ray Dalio's argument is, uh, is, is super uh, accurate, at, l at least not at this point. Maybe at some point in the future, when currencies collapse, that, that'll be uh, uh, the time his arguments will be right. But I'm, I'm not convinced that the debt cycle is ready to end uh, just yet.
so again, it doesn't mean you're building a house of cards, but what did Ray Dalio have to say about crypto? Well, one of the things I thought was really interesting about his arguments about crypto was that one of the best things that we could potentially see for crypto would be some form of inflation-linked coins, something that gives you a secure set of buying power. <laughs> now, uh, obviously, immediately what comes to mind here is Bitcoin because of the limited supply that Bitcoin has and the theory that in the longer term, uh, essentially, Bitcoin should be uh, a, a large inflation hedge because there's a limited supply of it that should help squeeze the price up. Kathy Wood highly believes in her bull case that Bitcoin will become a digital gold. And if it becomes a digital gold and we even get a 40% adoption uh, of the gold market for uh, Bitcoin, essentially, so moving from gold to Bitcoin, even if you get that 40% adoption, plus some other aspects that she thinks are bullish for Bitcoin, uh, for, for its network effects and otherwise, uh, she, she's got a $1 million price target for Bitcoin. So on some, you know, count here, I, I feel like Ray Dalio was slightly describing Bitcoin uh, via an inflation-linked coin without describing Bitcoin, but suggesting you should have some kind of inflation-protected coin, that people being able to preserve their purchasing power would be useful. Now, he argues that Bitcoin's too volatile and it's only about a third of the market cap of Microsoft. But I think a lot of crypto bulls would argue that is exactly why maybe now would be the time to buy Bitcoin. It's an interesting idea, and it stands in the face of what Charlie Munger says. Charlie Munger, obviously, Warren Buffett's uh, co-star, dare I say. And uh, Charlie Munger wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal today. It's an op-ed, and it's titled, Why America Should Ban Crypto. Charlie Munger says that in recent years, privately owned companies have issued thousands of new cryptocurrencies, both large and small. And these have later become publicly traded without any government approval or disclosure. In some cases, big blocks of cryptocurrency <coughs> excuse me, are sold to a promoter for almost nothing and then sold to a, uh, with a substantially higher value later uh, to the public without the public understanding how dilution works. Now, I think this is really useful because Charlie Munger is right. Most people have no idea how dilution works and how terrible it is when it comes to investing in companies. And unfortunately, it's a sad reality that most people don't understand it. And this is how people make a lot of money in the stock market. It's through uh, companies going public or uh, coins going public with substantial dilution. I think an easy way to explain to you what a dilution is, is giving you an example. Let's say I create the uh, MKC. We're going to create it together, okay? Let's say we create the Meet Kevin coin. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create uh, 1 million coins. And uh, what I'm going to tell you is that on the market, I'm only going to allow 1,000 of those coins to sell. And I'm going to sell those coins for $1. But keep in mind, my costs to create the Meet Kevin coin were $10. So in other words, <coughs> excuse me, if I created a Meet Kevin coin for the cost of $10, I only put $10 into creating a million coins, right? And if I now limit the float, float is a very important word. In fact, it has a lot to do with the Adani disaster that's going on. When you limit the float, you could really increase the value of each share or each coin. So if I say, listen, we are only going to have 
1,000 coins available for sale. And if you want to meet Kevin Coin, you have to pay a dollar for each of those coins. Well, in this example, I get about $1,000 in cash, but you have been substantially diluted by the fact that there are another 999,000 coins available which means on one hand, you've actually just created a million dollars in value. You turned my $10 into $1 million in value. And the reason you could be diluted is because while there are now a thousand coins outstanding, I could take another thousand and start selling them again for another dollar or maybe even 80 cents, whatever it is. But because of those prior sales, people believe, ah, okay, this is about where the market value is. And if you slowly trickle them out, you essentially dilute the base and you can make lots of money. This is essentially what Charlie Munger is saying. And it's the same thing that companies do, right? I mean, think about it from a company example here. If you go to somebody uh, and you say, hey, look, I own 100% of a company and uh, I'm into it for, I don't know, $50 million, right? I'll sell you 10% of this company for, uh, let's say, $25 million. Well, what I've just done is if I sell you 10% of the company for $25 million, what I've just done is valued the entire company at $250 million. In other words, I just 5X'd the value of the company by selling a small slice to somebody else for a substantially higher valuation, right? This is the same thing that happens in crypto. It's the same thing that happens in the stock market. So it's really no different from that. I think Charlie Munger here is just making the argument that most people don't understand that kind of dilution that favors the original creator of the coin because there's a lack of disclosure. Although I could tell you this, there is a massive lack of disclosure in, uh, in, in most of the SPACs that we've seen. In fact, most of the SPACs have had these insane and glorious projections only to end up proving to us that none of those were even remotely accurate. Uh, and it's unfortunate that even SPACs are able to get through the SAC and the regulatory process and end up creating the same dilution that Charlie Munger is talking about through technically the official processes. Although here, Charlie Munger goes as far as saying that because of this lack of disclosure and lack of dilution awareness from individuals, cryptocurrency should basically be banned. He goes on to say that crypto is not a currency, it's not a commodity, it's not a security. Instead, it's a gambling contract with nearly a 100% edge for the house. Now, I would argue that with the case of, let's say, like a Bitcoin, there really isn't much of a house given, given how just decentralized it really has become. But uh, sure, I, I would argue he's not wrong when it comes to smaller coins that are created. Yeah, there's probably more than 100% edge for the house. The house wins through via that dilution that I explained. Uh, and so Charlie Munger actually goes as far as praising China for banning cryptocurrencies, concluding that uh, cryptocurrencies provide more harm than benefit. And he says that, look, the English parliament did this in the 1700s when companies were basically uh, uh, ex exhibiting this, this cryptocurrency-like behavior uh, in early stock listings in the 1700s. And when England banned new stocks uh, from publicly trading for about 100 years, uh, Charlie Munger suggests that the world was actually able to progress substantially from the Enlightenment to the Industrial Re Revolution to the creation of the United States. So in other words, 
dare I make this slippery slope analogy, although I didn't make it, Charlie Munger actually did. I'm just gonna say it in a different way. Charlie Munger is basically saying, if you ban crypto, you'll be able to create a new United States. <laughs> Uh, it, it, that's that's how extreme of an argument he's making. He's basically saying it's so speculative and such a robbing of value from people that you potentially eliminate the opportunity to create something as great as the Industrial Revolution or another United States. Now, that's a pretty big argument there uh, by Charlie Munger. Uh, and uh, I don't know how I feel about it, <laughs> but I'm curious to know what you think about it. Keep in mind, Kathy Woods got that $1 million price target on her bull case for Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, ultimately, you have, uh, going back to Ray Dalio, Ray Dalio suggesting that stable coins are not great because they're kind of like fiat, which is interesting because the good stable coins are actually backed by $1 of fiat. So maybe he's not necessarily wrong with that, except it's harder to print new stable coins unless you get an inflow of new dollars. So potentially there is a difference uh, there since we're not printing new stable coins. Unless, of course, you're Tether. Then we don't really know what's going on. Anyway, this is an interesting point of view from Charlie Bunger. And it's an interesting point of view from Ray Dalio. Honestly, I kind of wrap this one up by saying, I don't know if we're just listening to two old people fuss about things that they just don't like. Ray Dalio doesn't like the government printing money. And again, a lot of people don't and think the government should run a balanced budget. Is it going to happen anytime soon? Probably not. Charlie Munger is complaining about cryptocurrency. Not a surprise. He always has. Is he correct, though, in suggesting that dilution is a big problem for initial investors and things? Absolutely. This is why with the company that I, my startup, Househack, we're actually selling shares at $1 per share for every $1 of cash that we have. So basically, the company is worth one to one there oops there is no pre-dilution uh you know we, we could go in and say hey we're raising 50 million dollars at 150 million dollar valuation that would make your shares essentially get diluted down to 33 cents right for every dollar you put in but that's not actually what i'm doing with my company at house hack i'm purposefully preventing that pre-dilution at house hack uh read the solicitation at househack.com by making sure that if we raise 50 mil the company's worth 50 mil if we raise 75 the company's worth 75. Uh, and, and I'm doing that, in my opinion. It's sort of like a, a well, it's twofold. One, I think it's a gift to my subscribers uh, and, and the people who believe in me. But number two, it also gives me the opportunity to prove myself that, that I can build this company uh, and turn it into something really incredible. So that way, when the company actually gets a market valuation, which is generally a multiple of your book value, uh, then, uh, then, then those people who initially invested in me win, uh, and uh, everybody wins uh, who's involved. So I'm a big fan of that. But anyway, it's interesting to consider that that pre-dilution argument. Uh, I, I don't know if it rises to the level of banning all crypto, but don't get me wrong. There are a ton of lame, smaller, scammy coins that we want to be careful of. So what else do we have? Well, there's a lot to cover. <laughs> so let's get into uh, the rest. So that was uh, banning crypto and Ray Dalio. Right now, if we do a quick check of what we, what's going on in the pre-market here. In the pre-market, we have, uh, let's see, bonds, 10-year uh, sitting at about 3.39. You've got down negative by about, uh, point, uh, by about a third, but the S&P futures up about half and NASDAQ futures up about 1.5%. Uh, Tesla on the pre-market here up 2%. Trade Desk up about 5, almost 6%. Uh, 
Uh, and then you also have smaller companies that are starting to rally quite a bit, like Carvana, Bed Bath, Meta, uh, and, and some of these others. Well, Meta not being a smaller company, but Carvana and Bed Bath rallying. Actually, I think it's worth mentioning something about Carvana and what Ray Dalio mentioned. One sec. Uh, okay. Now, another thing that Ray Dalio told us was a warning that companies with low free cash flow in any minor shock that comes up are going to have to raise a lot of money and you could potentially see very quick collapses of what he calls bubbles occurring in certain markets. Now, I think this is very accurate, especially in the private market where you actually haven't seen a lot of those valuation adjustments yet. But one of the issues that you have in a recession is you have a lack of cash, you have a lack of liquidity. And this is one of the reasons I think Ray Dalio is suggesting, hey, cash is a good thing. But what I think is remarkable is Ray Dalio is really providing a warning to the people speculating on companies like Carvana and Bed Bath, companies that are really heading towards bankruptcy. Yet here in the pre-market, Carvana, for example, is up 27%, and Bed Bath & Beyond is heading up 25%. These are generally unsustainable momentum rallies where the reason we get increases or spikes in these stocks is solely because more people are buying them. Uh, maybe somebody's manipulating you know, uh, sentiment on uh, stock twits or, or whatever. Uh, and uh, what's great uh, in terms of a warning is when Ray Dalio says, look, companies that have low free cash flow are going to have to go to the capital markets to raise money. He's basically providing a massive warning that companies that are trending towards bankruptcy because they don't have free cash flow in a recession are companies that are going to suffer bigly in any kind of future little hiccups that pop up. And I think he couldn't be more right. Obviously, right now, markets are a little bit euphoric after Jerome Powell suggesting that the process of disinflation has started. But there's a reason why my goal in investing really for the last six plus months has been to focus, uh, actually probably more like a year, six to, to six to 12 months. My goal has been focusing on high free cash flow companies that, uh, that have low liquidity risk or needs to go to the market to raise a lot of money. So high free cash flow companies, those with margin or those with pricing power, in my opinion, are companies that I really want to focus on. Uh, and so I think Ray Dalio's uh, warning really reiterates that. Something to keep in mind. All right. Let's say what Bloomberg has for us. Okay, let's listen in here goes from 275 to 325 and the depot rate goes from 2% to 250. I have to say I never thought we'd get here but here we are. 250 and we break back through 110 on euro dollar. The headlines are going to keep coming out. Lisa you go through them. I'm going to bring up the statement and we'll work through this together. Yeah, I'm looking right now at a meeting-to-meeting -meeting approach to further rate decisions. I'm also, uh, I find it interesting that they talk about continuing to uh, roll off the APP portfolio. It's starting to fall from March, so we'll have to dig into what they say about balance sheet uh, types of action. Also saying that rates still have to rise significantly and at a steady pace. This is a hawkish uh, kind of tilt that people were looking for, even as they reiterate some of the other uh, rhetoric 
from the last meeting. So here's the statement for you. The Governing Council will stay the course in raising interest rates significantly at a steady pace and in keeping them at levels that are sufficiently restrictive to ensure a timely return to inflation to its 2% medium time target. Accordingly, the Governing Council today decided to raise the three key ECB interest rates by 50 basis points and expects to raise them further. In view of the underlying inflation pressures, the Governing Council intends to raise interest rates by another 50 basis points at its next monetary policy meeting in March and it will then evaluate the subsequent path of its monetary policy. So never mind the end of forward guidance, that's basically a commitment <laughs> to go 50 basis points in March. They go on to say keeping interest rates at restrictive levels will over time reduce inflation by dampening demand and will also guard against the risk of a persistent upward shift in inflation expectations. In any event, the Governing Council's future policy rate decisions will continue to be data-dependent and follow a meeting-by-meeting -meeting approach. Apparently, just not the March meeting, because that'll be 50, 50. but everything after that is meeting-by-meeting. I wonder how much guidance they got from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Basically, if you want to be hawkish, you've got to give specifics and you've got to push back. Basically saying, don't even pretend that we're going to step down. We're not stepping down. Let's go. And how much is this basically the guidance that they're giving to really uh, shake the market into acquiescence? Let's work through the price action off the back of it. Looking at German Bund yields, lower at the front end by seven basis points, 257 on a 10-year. Lower by about 10 or 11 basis points. Bear in mind that yesterday we had a big rally in the bond market in Treasuries too. But yields lower in Germany and they stay lower. Looking at the FX market, Euro dollar, where are we? We can bring that up quickly for you. Euro dollar pushing through 110 earlier and then backing away at 109.95. So it's over you, President Lagarde, Tom, in about, what, 30 yeah. minutes' time? As you look at the yields come in, Italy yields came in as well. I don't want to make too much about it. It's sort of range bound, but the spread, Italy as compared to Germany comes in a little bit uh, as as well. But it's the same thing as we saw with Powell. It's a lower rate regime, and I would translate that as price up is more important than the yield down. This is a price money moving in, buying into the paper because of a trend that's out there. I don't understand this. Which this bit? is This is unabashedly pretty hawkish, basically saying we're going to raise rates for another 50 basis points, two meetings, 100 basis point increase after people said that they were never going to get off zero or even negative. <sighs> And you have bonds rallying, <laughs> yields lower, <laughs> and you have pretty muted moves. I'm just trying to wrap my head around what the positioning well, I, was I, heading I, into this. Okay, so to explain what she's talking about here, so the European Central Bank basically just raised rates. Uh, and uh, what you have is when you raise rates, generally you see bond yields go up, especially when rates go up more than expected at the Central Bank. But what's actually happening is yields are falling and people are buying more bonds in Europe, which is really, really interesting because it's the opposite of what you would expect. So that's roughly what she's saying. Uh, that's quite interesting because that, that is a little odd. Uh, so we'll, we'll, especially since uh, they're, they're keeping on that steady and hawkish tone, it could potentially be that uh, folks don't believe that the European Central Bank and Bank of England will be able to keep this sort of hawkish face on forever which kind of makes us uh, need to transition to the idea of what, what's next for uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, that's a big one. Let's talk about that. One sec. All right, let's talk about what's next for the Federal Reserve. After dovish comments from Jerome Powell yesterday, which were surprisingly more dovish than we expected. I mean, essentially, Jerome Powell, the more he talked, the more the market went up. Usually it's the opposite. The more he talks, the more the market goes down. And I think it's really important to start with an inflation discussion and what we really need to see happen in order to see Jerome Powell's dovishness 
continue. So I'm going to show you exactly the sectors that you want to pay attention to when it comes to inflation coming down. It's not goods inflation. We know that goods are already disinflating, coming down in inflation rates. We know that housing and shelter is expected to start showing massive declines for inflation, which could help anchor the inflation reports down substantially. However, Jerome Powell is concerned that when you look at inflation, X housing, X energy, X food, basically you just look at what they call the super core of services, which is where higher wages could hurt inflation, the following are the sectors that we're looking at. On screen now, we have water and sewer and trash collection services, domestic services, lawn mowing, repair of household items, medical expenses. That's a big one. Medical expenses sitting at about nearly a 7% weight. Professional services sitting at about a 3.4% weight within that. That would include physicians, dental, eyeglasses, hospital services. Notice that in hospital services, in the last CPI report, we actually got a 1.7% inflation read month over month. That's pretty high. That's pretty aggressive, though we did get a substantial drop in services by other medical professionals. So medical care services overall only increased about 0.1%. But if we see a, a, a jump in that in future inflation reports, we could actually be setting up for potentially a negative inflation surprise. So I want you to pay attention to medical services. Transportation services, car and truck rentals have been plummeting, for example. Vehicle insurances, public transportation, including airfares. We actually kind of expect the potential for price wars to start coming to uh, airlines. At least this is roughly what we gleaned from the United Airlines report, which is a way of potentially saying, hey, look, if you get price wars at airlines, we could continue to see airfares drop and public transportation makes up about a 0.9% weight on uh, CPI reads. Recreational services holding about a 3.1% weight. That'll be another important one to watch. Uh, we've got education and communication services, 5.3% weight. Admission to sporting goods, miscellaneous personal expenses, uh, haircuts, uh, apparel services, financial services, tax prep services. These are the sort of services that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, will report data to us coming up here in 12 days on Valentine's Day. And they're going to be very important for what the Fed is looking at. So if you're looking at, okay, wh where do we want to be cautious? Where do we want to potentially pay attention for increasing prices? It's those services sectors. So maybe pay a little bit more attention to what you're getting uh, from companies that are reporting uh, service style revenue. So maybe pay a little bit more attention to the advertisers, uh, which we'll talk about later, such as a trade desk or a Facebook earnings or Google earnings. Maybe pay attention a little bit more to what we're seeing at those airline services. And are we seeing any of those pressures subside? A lot of companies when it comes to inflation seem to be expecting deflation or, or deflation, or at least disinflation by the second half of the year giving you, for example, uh, the uh, consideration of even uh, AMD suggesting that their pipeline, and this is a little bit more good style inflation, right? But for uh, AMD, at least, 
we expect to see more discounting on the older pipeline of products. That's disinflationary, right? Helps bring our goods costs down. Pulte Homes, discounting homes more. Okay, eventually that feeds through, pushing real estate prices down, pushes rents down, brings down that housing inflation. GM, discounting vehicles more. Great. Maybe that discounted vehicles, which is a durable good, will eventually translate to lower prices in car rentals because if cars are cheaper to buy, then they're cheaper to rent out for, uh, for, for transportation purposes, right? Important. Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, higher inflation at the beginning of the year, but expecting lower. But again, that's more on the product side. So we'll really want to start switching to paying attention to earnings for companies that are providing us services. And is it possible that technology companies could lead deflation in that sort of sector? Are we going to see lower earnings at companies like Adobe and Autodesk or software as a services company? Uh, companies which basically drive input costs for a lot of service-based companies. And could those sort of reductions in price competitiveness lead to disinflation uh, in those areas? Uh, maybe, but is that going to change anything over at medical care services? TBD, that's going to be a sector that we really want to pay attention to going forward. So we'll see. But beyond that, the Federal Reserve quite substantially excited uh, about the disinflation that we're starting to see. And Jerome Powell does tell us that he expects to start seeing disinflation start impacting the services sector soon. That is their base case that even though it's running a little hot right now, they expect to see it come down uh, very soon. When? He doesn't know. So he doesn't want to come across as optimistic or bearish. Uh, or pessimistic, should I say, about what's going to end up happening with inflation in the services sector. But it's going to be a sector we want to pay attention to. Uh, and, and one of the ways that we could do this is, again, when we look at earnings reports that come out, you want to see more uh, sort of uh, belt tightening in terms of uh, employment. Nobody wants to see people get in, uh, unemployed, but the less wage press pressures you end up seeing, the less pressures you might end up seeing on services, right? The lower cost that uh, of, or the lower expense you have for hiring people who are going to prepare tax returns or uh, the lower cost for dental hygienists all end up meaning the lower prices that companies end up having to charge uh, their customers. Uh, and you can actually create GDP growth without substantial inflation. So We'll see. But what we got from Jerome Powell was relatively dovish yesterday, and we are seeing a lot of signs of disinflation. However, they create a substantial risk that if for whatever reason we end up seeing services run hot, like those that I mentioned, you could end up having a pretty quick downside in stocks and a pretty quick rally in treasury yields. So in my opinion, one of the things that you want to be careful of is uh, as much as I'm invested into the market and as much as I'm excited about the market going green because it's been it's been you know quite a wait for the market to start rallying again, I think it's important to uh, look at your portfolio and say, look, if, if you've got margin, uh, maybe maybe start taking a little bit off the table as we get into sort of a rally mode or we, maybe you start seeing a little bit of a U-turn in the rally. People start selling the rally a little bit or maybe going into CPI on the 14th. Maybe you start selling just a little bit just to get out of margin and pay off your margin. Have a little bit of cash on the side so that way if uh, we start getting any kind of inflationary surprises, between which I expect there will be some inflationary surprises this year, uh, maybe then then you have more capital available to buy the dip between now and uh, say the middle to end of this year. 
So some things to consider, along with obviously what's going on with China. Because another thing with China is, as, as much as I believe the inflationary boost that we're going to get from spending in China is going to be somewhere around one-sixth of what we saw in America, this is solely calculated by the excess savings that are estimated for the Chinese population versus the American population following the release of COVID lockdowns, suggesting that the Chinese have about one-sixth of the money that we had coming out of COVID lockdowns. You still have the potential uh, for surging, uh, you know, surging demand in China, leading to some kind of boost in inflation. AMD, for example, talked about how, and this is potentially a counterpoint, how they invested about one billion dollars in their supply chains to be prepared for a return to demand. I think a lot of companies are doing that. So I think the Chinese have less money than Americans. On top of that. Uh, uh, during the reopening. On top of that, I think you've got companies that are substantially more prepared. This is my scrunchy example. Companies are a lot more prepared for basically a surge in demand now to prevent inflation than what we saw in 2021 and 2022. Nonetheless, Bloomberg still argues that the Chinese reopening is set to provide a welcome boost to global growth. However, it could also boost inflation as central banks are struggling to get inflation under control. And we could see that pressure on oil and gas prices. We could see that pressure on commodities. This is a very common trade right now, is the belief that oil and gas uh, prices are going to rise, that commodity prices are going to rise, uh, and that really this extra demand is going to fuel uh, the, the items uh, in, in sort of our markets that we can't just create more of. We can't just as easily create more oil as we'd like, and we can't just create as much uh, copper as we want to be able to sustain some kind of uh, reopening in China. Again, I think that reopening is going to have one-sixth the pressure of the United States reopening, and I think supply chains are substantially in substantially better places than uh, now than where they were then. But you also have to consider that when the United States reopened, we were only sitting at probably somewhere around 200 oil rigs actually operating and drilling uh, at the time, whereas before the pandemic, we were sitting at somewhere between six to 700, and now we're sitting back at about 600. So you've, even in the oil markets, got substantially more rigs online now than you did during the reopening of the depths of the pandemic because oil companies were hit so hard and had to take on so much debt to survive, especially when oil went negative, that they ended up shutting down rigs and laying off oil workers. And it's taken a few years to get those folks back and to get rigs back online. In my opinion, that suggests that even with the reopening now, you could see a substantial absorption of Chinese excess demand without seeing substantial boosts in inflation. We'll see. Like I said, the biggest concern for inflation is going to be in that services sector. Yes, there's obviously going to be the concern about commodities price inflation. I'm personally not concerned about that, but I know a lot of traders are making bets on that. I think the biggest thing we want to pay attention to is the potential for higher services inflation. That could be something that actually derails Jerome Powell's optimism. It's very possible that if services inflation starts ticking up again, that the next summary of economic projections might end up being a U-turn, kind of like what we got from Jerome Powell between November and December. In November, Jerome Powell was pretty optimistic. Then in December, all of a sudden, he turned hawkish again, and we got the most hawkish summary of economic projections uh, ever uh, in, in this tightening cycle. And that same kind of thing could happen again. Uh, I don't think that's my base case. I would just call that sort of the edge scenario of uh, as, as exciting as it is that markets are running, and I'm very happy about that, and I'm 
substantially benefiting, obviously, from, from the market rally, and I want to see that continue going on. I, I, I don't think it's wise to be... Um, uh, to, to think that inflation for sure is over. Uh, there are still risks on the horizon, uh, as we saw with the Bank of England raising rates 50 basis points today, ECB raising rates 50 basis points, both of them talking about inflation risk being skewed to the upside. There are risks, especially in that services sector. Now, is it possible that Powell, the ECB, and the Bank of England are, as I've previously said, keeping on that hard mask to make sure that inflation expectations don't non-anchor? Absolutely totally possible that the central bankers are just acting tough in order to pressure inflation down. Hopefully that's the case, right? And I believe that's the case. That's why, and I want to be very clear, so there's no confusion, uh, my, uh, like, I'm, I'm long this market. Uh, and I'm very happy about that because I do think that inflation will plummet. But I do think there's the potential for some minor, at least, upside surprises uh, in, uh, in the services sector. And so it makes sense to have a little bit of dry powder, a little bit, you know, maybe 15% or something like that, available for uh, potential dip opportunities when we go back into red weeks, because there always will be red weeks again. And it's something to remember is when a rally starts, is that, yes, enjoy the rally while it goes, but there will always be another red time in the future, <laughs> so keep that in mind. But again, my, my longer-term thesis is that uh, whether you're all in now or your dollar cost averaging, just stay safe for the potential downside risk uh, that will probably end up being temporary. As long as you can survive potential short-term drops to the downside, I think we are on that Nike swoosh recovery and things are going to be substantially more positive than they are going to be negative. Now, this is only true though if you're listening to folks that I think are, are, are trying to have a balanced view of the market. Uh, there are unfortunately some folks that are real big bears who just refuse to believe that it is remotely possible that inflation could go away. Uh, and that, for example, would be somebody like this dude on Twitter named MacroAlf. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to bag on him. Uh, you know, I like his negative points of view because they serve as sort of a, like a contrarian reminder. He's a big fan of saying the first innings of a recession always look like a soft landing. That first, the labor market weakens, but not enough to generate substantial job losses. And it's really only once you get substantial job losses and earnings decline that and inflation drops that you realize, oh my gosh, this recession is terrible. Uh, and then things get really bad. So in other words, you've got this individual saying, look, things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better. Uh, and this sort of is reiterated by people like Michael Burry who say sell or other people who say, look, as soon as the Federal Reserve pivots, things are actually going to collapse even more than, uh, than, than they already have. I personally disagree with that assessment very heavily. The reason I disagree with that assessment very heavily is because the recession that we face today, potentially, maybe we don't, right? Maybe we don't even go into a recession, but the recession we face is one that is induced by the Fed. This is a manufactured recession. It's known as forcing a recession, uh, or, or at least forcing the market close to a recession or close to recession. This is what I talked about in January of 2022. I said that if inflation went hot, the Fed will force a recession, especially if we get a wage price spiral. Now, the good news is Jerome Powell believes the odds of a wage price spiral have actually been diminishing this is very good because it means that maybe we don't have to get a forced recession. And that is the key, is the Fed does not actually have to continue engineering layoffs. The Fed can and will U-turn on needing to continue to engineer layoffs and a forced recession. 
And that's what makes, dare I say, this time different from prior recessions, is that in prior recessions, you had really structural issues uh, in markets. Let's look, for example, at the structural issues of the Great Recession. Dead people getting housing loans, rampant speculation uh, for, for real estate, uh, re uh, basically people with terrible credit scores getting these insane adjustable rate mortgages where they were being offered negative interest rates to lower their payment up front to let them qualify. But then in six months, their interest rate would adjust to ne from negative something, you know, negative, say, 1% to like positive 7%. And people were signing up for that because housing prices were just going up so fast that people thought, oh my gosh, I'll just refinance in six months and I'll just do it again and I'll get rich through real estate. It was kind of the same kind of bubble mechanic and structural problem that you saw in the dot-com bubble. What makes really this recession different, and again, the four most dangerous words in a recession or really in any kind of market are this time is different. So keep that in mind, okay? Like that that is a risk factor. But what does make this quite different is that as if inflation continues to go away, and keep in mind, I've been cautioning that there are parts of inflation that could still pop up, especially in that services sector we talked about. So we started this on. As long as inflation continues to go away, the need for the Federal Reserve to create joblessness is gone. The need for the recession is gone. The only real structural problem right now, with the exception of a potential black swan that could pop up like a debt crisis or something crazy, the only major issue we face right now is inflation. That's the structural problem right now. As soon as you take out inflation, what do you have? You have people who have more wealth than they've previously had. You've got very good lending in real estate. You don't have dead people getting loans. You've got highly qualified people getting loans, higher credit scores than ever before. Yeah, you've got problems in places like the car market uh, and defaults are starting to kind of return to 2019 levels. But are we seeing the levels of, of defaults that we saw in the 2008 recession suggesting massive financial pain for people? No. Obviously, inflation is a bitch. You know, people are spending more money at grocery stores. Eggs are more expensive. Hamburgers are still very expensive. Uh, you know, burritos should not be $14. There are issues. Prices have gone up. But as long as that increase goes away, it's entirely possible for the Fed to maintain this U-turn stance. And that's why I have the belief that it makes sense to be more long-term bullish but also protected. Uh, and so that way, in the event we have sh some shocks to the downside, you're ready to either survive uh, or potentially buy the dip. Remember, you should not be buying the dip if you're not potentially capable of surviving. Uh, so, right? Like, don't buy the dip with margin. <laughs> so uh, that, that's my belief. And that's why I believe really this pivot uh, from the Fed, which would be a pause or a reduction in rates, is completely different from uh, prior pivots where the Federal Reserve was kind of like, wait a minute. I mean, if you look at like the Federal Reserve was not driving the prior recessions. If you look back at the 70s, what happened? Well, you left the dollar, you left the gold standard and you were just getting off of insane price caps. Uh, so in other words, you had price caps uh, from earlier presidential administrations in the late 60s and early 70s. Those price caps got removed. Prices skyrocketed up. People are like, oh my gosh, everything's getting more expensive. Yeah, because you removed the price caps on stuff. Now you also left the gold standard. Oh my gosh, inflation's going to stay here forever. Expectation of long-term inflation. There's your structural problem. What did you have in the late 80s? A savings and loan crisis. Speculative real estate lending, just like you had in 2008. What did you have in the early uh, uh, 2000s? A dot-com bubble, which was driven by euphoria and massive rampant speculation and profitless tech companies. Uh, which you don't want to speculate on. I, I think it's a terrible idea to speculate on profitless companies. So 
those are some of the structural issues that, that you faced. And so when the Federal Reserve was raising rate or, or uh, reducing rates in some of these prior eras, they were actually kind of like, can we avoid a recession? And can we try to stamp out some of the excess of these other you know, structural issues without creating a recession? That was sort of the prior thesis. And this is why you saw rate cuts lead to further drops in markets because the problem of the market was not the Fed. The problem of the market was something else. In this recession, the only problem we have is the Fed and inflation, right? The Fed's fighting inflation. So however you slice it, when the inflation problem goes away uh, and the Fed starts cutting, uh, I think we probably go back to the trend of the great moderation. Now, if you don't believe in that, then, then don't be long the market, right? Then this is just a bear market rally and we're going right back down. Uh, but that, that is one way of looking at things. It's not saying that I'm definitely right. But for me, look, I'm taking every opportunity to expand my palette of pricing power style stocks and expand my exposure to stocks that exhibit substantial pricing power, leads ahead of their competitors, uh, massive investments for potential, uh, uh, you know, either uh, uh, more capabilities in the future, uh, more innovation in the future, uh, higher margins in the future, right? We are going through sort of a, a recessionary time. Uh, so you have to look, play the long game a little bit, but I'm a big fan of companies with cash flow, the potential for high margins or present high margins and uh, innovation, which because I think all those sort of companies massively on sale still even today. So that's sort of my thesis. We'll see. We'll see though. You know, again, risks, China inflation, services inflation. That's probably your biggest risk. Then on the small end of the spectrum, you have the black swan scenario, which would be a risk of some form of massive debt collapse, uh, breaking of the bond market because nobody's buying bonds and the Fed all of a sudden has to jump in because everybody's parking their money into repos. I don't know. So far, things are orderly. Is there a potential of a big black swan? Absolutely. Is it as obvious? Like, is the downside ahead of us now as obvious as the downside was in January of 2022? No, not at all. Like, we're in almost the opposite scenario of where we were in January of 2022. January of 2022 was hell. Every company was bragging about how they were able to raise prices and people were buying. It was insane. It was a bubble. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was, it was a stimulus-induced one. And now we're paying the price for a stimulus-induced bubble uh, via high inflation and via the Fed tightening cycle. And as soon as that inflation is out of the system, the structural problem is gone, Fed can go back to a looser monetary regime. Uh, that's my thesis. And so that's what I'm making my bets on. And again, I don't want to be that person that's just going to sit here and be like, all right, guys, just buy the S&P 500 and, and don't pay attention to financial markets. I don't believe that. Uh, so I, I, I like playing financial markets. And, and in painful times, I like increasing my allocation to, to companies that I think are going to do really well for the next decade, uh, whether that's energy, chips, tech, uh, pricing, power stocks, whatever it may be. Uh, but that's my personality. You, you don't have to agree with that. So, But either way, I appreciate you for watching. So, all right, that gives us a little bit of uh, what's next for the Fed and, uh, in my opinion, what they're going to be paying attention to. Now, uh, we are going to take a quick look at uh, CNBC, and then I want to talk a little bit about advertising next. I think that'll be uh, fascinating. Let's do a quick look at the markets here. Oh, what is this? Press a button to continue. Stand by. Market forces. I mean, we, we all were frustrated trying to fly around last year. I remember when we first got him on the show after, you know, after everybody's flights were getting canceled in June and July. You know, I asked him some really tough questions, uh, pushed him around a little bit rhetorically. 
uh, and uh, he had all the right answers. He got on the planes. He, he was flying, and we had him back this fall. And my God, you you look at the difference between uh, how how traveling by air was this fall compared to this summer. Um, it, it really a pretty good transformation. It seems to me all you can do in that position is stay as engaged as possible. Uh, I, there, there's some legislation I know that he wants to push that he's going to have a have a hard time getting through the House. But but I think he's done. I think he's done a good job. Uh, he's stayed engaged, and the guy who's going to be criticized no matter what he did. Jeff Scarborough, it's always good to see you, my friend. It's great seeing you too. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, man. See you soon. Coming up, Jim Cramer's first take on the trading day ahead. Then Bernstein senior research analyst Tony Sakanagi will join us to talk Apple ahead of the tech giant's first quarter earnings report tonight after the bell. And as we head to break, we want you to play, some, play you something hedge fund giant Ray Dalio told us just the last hour. We were speaking about whether markets do or do not believe there are more interest rate hikes to come from the Fed. Here's what he said. What's in the curve is a significant easing. Yep. Right. What's in, what uh, Jay Powell is saying is steady. Right. Believe steady. Mm -hmm. You're saying believe steady. Believe You're saying steady. believe what I'm, Jay Powell I'm, is I'm, saying. Right. right. Mm, yeah, good old Ray Dalio. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, he, he could end up being right. Everybody's got a different opinion. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about advertising in Facebook. Stand by for that discussion. Let's see here. Okay, we got. Oh, and there's a lot to talk about. Okay. All right. <laughs> now we're going to talk about Meta advertising, Snapchat, Pinterest, Trade Desk, and could advertising as well as Google potentially be a massive sector that is missing from your portfolio? Let's do some fundamental analysis and understand a little bit of what's going on in the advertising sector. Look, the first thing that we've got to start with is we've got to talk about Facebook because obviously their earnings were such that folks got very optimistic with a higher revenue beat than expected. Mark Zuckerberg talks about making the company more efficient. There was a lot of talk in the earnings call about being tired of having managers managing managers. Facebook laid off about 11,000 people. And the idea for Facebook is let's try to make the company a little bit flatter, less sort of hierarchical, which is very expensive because every payroll is expensive. If you are an employee, whatever your salary is, remember that the company probably has to pay about 50% more just to keep you around. So if you make 100K, it probably costs the company 100 $50,000. HR, payroll taxes, workers' comp, supplies, mistakes, days off, paid days off, vacation, sick time, you name it. Okay, there are a lot of costs that come along with that. that. But that's okay. But it makes sense if you can cut out some middle-level management and keep the company more efficient, there's a great opportunity to reduce your cash burn, especially since Meta is, well, continues to expect to spend a lot of money on uh, Reality Labs, which is really their money-losing division for the metaverse. And the reason Facebook is really doubling down on the idea of the metaverse is because they believe 
The metaverse, in my opinion, is the next frontier for social media advertising, and they want to make sure they get the grip on the metaverse. So that way, when people start actually spending more time in the metaverse, maybe the time they spend now on YouTube, they spend in the metaverse, Facebook could be the one that has a dominant advertising platform. So this year, at least, they're calling 2023 the year of efficiency, simplifying their organizational structure uh, and really trying to get back to a return to growth. They're increasing their share buybacks, they're lowering their expenses, and really, while digital advertising demand and pricing is still weak, they're starting to see some green shoots, along with an improvement in online e-commerce. Now, that was actually surprising to me. So you're seeing e-commerce see a little bit of a pop in advertising, and you're seeing, seeing travel and health spending substantially up. The sectors that are down in advertising are financial services and technology, with average price paid per ad down about 22%. However, they did allude to more growth in the potential advertising sector for short-form content, such as Facebook and Instagram Reels, which YouTube just yesterday turned on monetization for short-form Reels, uh, but well, short, YouTube Shorts, basically, a 60-second or less content. They just turned on monetization for that. So we'll see uh, what that end up, uh, ends up doing to the uh, advertising sector. But there's a lot of focus on Facebook, Snapchat, uh, Trade Desk, and Google for advertising. Google does end up reporting today. Uh, Pinterest is another one that's moving on this. They just uh, announced they're expecting to cut 150 jobs. You've had similar cuts uh, at Google. Google just had five executives from the DoubleClick ad business, which some say holds about 90% market share in, in sort of the brokering sector for brokering website ads. Five executives just apparently lost their jobs there, along with potentially hundreds of other individuals working there. Uh, Google has about a 25% market share of all digital advertising. And then in the other 75%, you've got companies advertising like, obviously, Facebook. Uh, then you've got, uh, YouTube's obviously part of Google. But then you've got a trade desk, uh, which is your connected TV advertiser, and so on. Uh, now, what's fascinating about the advertising sector is you've kind of got these hit and misses. You've got Facebook seemingly potentially excited, at least their stock's excited, seeing some green shoots in advertising again, uh, but you're still getting a hit from Reality Labs and cash expenses to where they're trying to refine their business to make it more effective. Unfortunately, you had Snapchat that reported and they missed bigly. And uh, they, that was potentially because You've got 90% of Snap's user base being under 25 years old, leading to potentially uh, less, uh, dare I say, uh, advertising revenue than some of the other platforms. After all, Snap generates more impressions per dollar than Google or Meta, but that's potentially because the, the users are just a lower value target. So advertisers also tend to have limited data using Snapchat on how their ad is doing. And this is leading a lot of folks to focus on different platforms. It kind of brings me to uh, wanting to look at two things. One, I want to look at the fundamentals for Facebook. And number two, we, I want to understand Trade Desk and their UID2 platform a little bit more. First though, let's look at Meta's fundamentals for a moment. So here's Meta fundamentally, and we'll go ahead and look at some of these numbers together. So. Facebook's revenue declined for the third quarter in a row, uh, year over year. So you're really in a revenue recession at Facebook, right? Their revenue is down to $32.1 billion versus 33.6 at the same time last year. That's about a 4.5% decline in revenue. At the same time as their revenue is declining, 
their costs are going up substantially. While their revenue declined 4%, their costs of goods sold, which actually doesn't include research and development, increased 31%. So even though the stock is rallying, you do have some problems. Revenue declining 4% and costs of goods sold up 31%. R&D also exploded. $9.7 billion of R&D expense compared to about $7 billion of R&D expense last year puts you at about a 39 percentage point increase in uh, research and development. Their marketing and sales and G&A stayed roughly flat to slightly negative. Uh, and really what you had was a, uh, a cost structure that just became a bit more, well, costly. So their net income fell, their net income sitting at about $4.6 billion, down from $10 billion last year. So you've got about half as much income coming into Facebook as you did last year. And if we go to a cash flow statement for the company, we're not terribly worried about the company's assets and their balance sheet, the company's well capitalized. But if we look at the cash flow statement, we can see, do they actually have cash flow? And if you take their net income and you look at they're operating cash. They do. They've got operating cash of about $14.5 billion in net cash provided by operating activities. Hold on. Let me just make sure quickly that we've got this aligned properly here. We've got net income of 4.6. We've got depreciation, share-based comp, uh, blah, 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 accounts receivable, accounts payable. We've got other liabilities. We've got net cash. Okay, yeah, exactly. Okay, then here we have purchases of property and equipment, $9 billion. This gives you a free cash flow estimate. Free cash flow would be the difference between cash flow from operating and cash flow uh, or cash expense for investments. So if we look at 14.5 minus 9, you're sitting at about $5.5 billion of free cash flow. It's not bad. So they're still making substantial amounts of money. And part of this is because they're adding back in about $2.3 billion in depreciation. Uh, they're adding back in $3 billion of share-based compensation. So you really have a company that's not short for cash. They've got plenty of cash. $5.5 billion of cash in just the three months ending uh, 2022. That's not bad. It's actually very impressive. If you look at the free cash flow for 2022, this is a company that's killing it with cash. For the entire year of 2022, you're sitting at free cash flow of about $15 billion. So plenty of cash. The question that you have to ask yourself is if you want to make or if you want to make a meta investment, if you're asking yourself, should I invest in meta, is you've got to ask yourself, do you believe in the potential future of Reality Labs? Because that's obviously where a lot of money is going right now. Uh, twice as much of their free cash flow is basically going into research and development, and that's expected to continue. So you have to believe that ultimately Reality Labs and virtual reality is, as they say, the next evolution in social technology. And if you don't believe in that, probably don't want to invest in Facebook. We could actually look at segment information here at Facebook and see that uh, Reality Labs, let's see here, Reality Labs, 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 Labs. Um, this is quite interesting how this is aligned. There we go, these align like this. And then we have Family of Apps here, Reality Labs. Reality Labs showing, I don't know why this is so uh, misaligned here. It's so difficult to understand. Reality Labs, this is segment info of revenue. There we go, okay. Reality Labs created $727 million of revenue 
and uh, Reality Labs cost about $4.2 billion, almost a billion dollars more than uh, what the company uh, or, or, or what the loss was last year. So you have about $4.2 billion going into Reality Labs and losses. And that is just in the last three months of 2022, which means if you look at that on an annualized basis, they're spending about $17 billion a year uh, in losses on the metaverse. So again, even though they're buying back shares, the numbers aren't as bad as expected. In the long term, you gotta ask yourself, how much do you believe in the potential for a company that's shrinking revenue to be able to turn around and start creating revenues again? Uh, and that's ultimately a question you have to ask yourself as an investor. Now, one of the things you can do to help you along with that is we could look at Wall Street consensus estimates. And if we jump over to uh, Facebook for uh, Wall Street consensus estimates, yeah, let's see here. We can find out that the projected earnings per share for Facebook in 2023 is $11.4, and that could grow by uh, about 20% for 2024 and 2025. But things get really blurry after 2024 and 2025, where Wall Street actually thinks that earnings are going to go negative again by 2026 and 2027. So in other words, unless you start producing revenue from Reality Labs by 2026, your earnings are probably going to start declining again, which would make your cost per growth very, very expensive at Facebook. But consider that company's multiples right now. Right now, Facebook stock in the pre-market is trading for about a buck 85. Divide that by about 11.4 and you're trading for about a 16 times multiple. If you think that the company's going to grow at 16% in the foreseeable future, you're really only paying about one times for the growth peg ratio, right? Dividing 16 times earnings by 16% growth, you're at about a 1x. However, if Facebook doesn't end up pulling it off with Reality Labs and their growth ends up only sitting around a measly, let's say 2 or 3% on average over the next few years, or let's just go with an even 5 to make math easy, well then you're probably paying closer to 3x on a peg-based ratio and that actually makes Facebook look very expensive. So an investment into Facebook right now, if you're making a longer-term investment, is solely based on the growth you expect from Reality Labs. Personally, you can make a similar sort of analysis. I think you can make a similar sort of analysis on Intel. Now, Intel is a company that's going through very much a similar transition as Facebook, except rather than betting on the metaverse, Intel is betting on three and four nanometer chips, which are advanced chips, uh, and to be developed in uh, new fabs that they're building in Ohio and expecting to come online by 2025. Right now, they use a lot of uh, TM. Uh, they actually use a lot of Taiwan semiconductors for for their building. And so, if you're heavy into Taiwan semiconductors and you're looking for potentially, potentially a value play on a transformation, maybe Intel is that opportunity where you're actually hedging against TSMC because now you have an American manufacturer, the largest American manufacturer, and you're betting on sort of a turnaround. Personally, I would rather make a bet on the Intel turnaround, thanks to the Chips Act and the tailwinds that that has, versus a bet on the metaverse, because I don't actually think we're close to the metaverse yet. I think the metaverse is something that would be Ready Player One-esque maybe in the 2030s plus, but I'm not convinced that Facebook will be the one to actually get us there. And so I'd rather wait to see what actually happens before I make the bet. And so when it comes to advertising, I actually am much more interested in a company like Trade Desk. Now, don't get me wrong. Trade Desk has not reported earnings yet, and this is going to be big foot and mouth if, Facebook, or if Trade Desk ends up missing. Uh, but I will tell you this. 
Oh my god. Trade Desk is up 8% in the pre-market right now. I have no idea why. Possibly just off the back of Facebook. I just realized that. Uh, Trade Desk is up at $56. Trade Desk is one of my, my, it's actually my largest advertising holding in my portfolio. Now, I want to explain a little bit about UID2 because there's a lot of confusion about UID2. So, UID2 uh, is something you have to know when it comes to advertising uh, because it's basically a new form of a cookie. It's an opt-in cookie where basically you opt in to be tracked uh, for your phone number, your email to be tracked. And initially you might think to yourself, why would you want to opt into that? Well, you're right. Most people won't. In fact, only about 10% of people are expected to opt in to UID2 style tracking or really any kind of tracking. However, all UID2 really needs is about 10% of people to opt in and then they can model the 10% of people who opt in, model their behavior and their characteristics against the characteristics of other people who behave in a similar way. And this is why UID2 potentially raises your uh, CPM metrics on advertising by as much as 116% compared to companies using third-party cookies. That's really good. On top of that, some companies estimate that their reach has increased as much as 40% and potentially led to a 1,000% increase in their actual return on spend. Now, this is incredible, and some of this information is uh, you know, brought to us by PubLift, which in the advertising space could be a little bit, uh, uh, a, a little bit on, on the bias side. Uh, but UID2 is, worth noting, it is an open source tech, and it's basically your new version of cookies. And Trade Desk is one of the companies that's in connected TV advertising, where uh, through UID2 and with connected TV advertising, Trade Desk expects to be able to blow up their advertising revenue. Now, no guarantees, but it's basically the new frontier for advertising where people are saying, look, why do we want to be on Facebook when you have problems with being able to track advertising success when you could move over to the new technology, which is UID2? Again, an open source framework, and the goal of it is actually to protect user privacy. And now that's interesting because this is kind of the chart of how it works. I'm not going to go super detailed into this, but basically the user visits a website the publisher explains, hey, you know, do you want to opt in basically? And it gives you the option. 10% of users, let's say, opt in. Now that creates a token for that user and only the non-public information is transferred to basically the auction websites for advertising. And you get this exchange of, of information for being able to basically track people on the internet. And again, if you can model around the 10% of people who've opted in, uh, then you can continue to sell more ads more effectively. And I think the best thing to do is just look at the success that some companies are having. Uh, and some companies are having great success. So for example, if you look at uh, Coco Village, they're the ones talking about a massive uh, increase in uh, return on ad spend and uh, a substantial boost in reach. On top of that, uh, you're seeing uh, Trade Desk very optimistically argue that this recession is an opportunity for them to actually gain more market share and get people realizing, look, 
in a recession, companies are going to have to be more careful with how they spend money. So why would you spend money on regular TV advertising when you could use connected TV advertising or you could get the advantages of UID too through some of the services that a company like Trade Desk provides? Why not go to a company like Trade Desk and have a substantially more efficient advertising platform than, than potentially waste your money on Facebook ads? Right? Like, and I'm not trying to bag on Facebook. Obviously, I'm biased here. I invest in Trade Desk and I don't invest in Facebook because I don't believe in Reality Labs and I do believe in UID too. But it's an interesting thing to think about. Again, this will all be foot and mouth if they miss earnings here uh, when, when earnings come up. But it's fascinating because you are in this sort of brave new world of advertising where Snapchat's having trouble figuring it out. Their user base is very young. Uh, Pinterest, somewhat a bit of a dying platform. Google is getting sued by the Department of Justice for potentially being a monopoly on sell-side advertising for brokering website ads. Then you have Facebook, which is throwing all their money away on Reality Labs. And so when you start looking at the advertisers, who do you really have left that's like a pure play advertiser? Well, in my opinion, one of the few pure play advertisers is Trade Desk. On the other hand, you have Apple. But Apple is great uh, uh, on one hand because of Apple ads, you know, obviously a, a, a little bit biased uh, with Apple because Apple can kind of make it harder for everybody else to advertise while at the same time pitching their own ad business. But Apple's not a pure play ad business, right? Apple's a products and services business. And then there's a little bit of advertising in there. So from a pure play advertising point of view, I think Trade Desk is probably the, the best option that exists. Hashtag no guarantees, obviously. Uh, and uh, then after that, you're probably maybe considering companies like Disney or uh, Netflix for their exposure to TV advertising. But then again, I'm not entirely convinced on their ability to convert uh, uh, ads to profitability through Disney Plus or Netflix. And instead, I'd rather be investing again in the pickaxe instead of the company itself in that case. And who's the pickaxe for Disney's connected TV? Trade Desk. <laughs> so kind of all points back to Trade Desk. Now again, no guarantees, but I'm very, very excited uh, about Trade Desk in the advertising space. And I think it's a good place uh, to, to have exposure, uh, especially since their financials pretty Solid. Again, no guarantees. Fourth quarter is going to be great, but you've got revenue that increased in the third quarter year over year 30%. Uh, now, what we can do is we can kind of compare that to what it was in the prior nine months to get a little bit of a trend. I, I don't have that written down here, so let's do that really quick. Let's divide. Divide by 808. That puts us at about 35%. So you've got a slight slowdown that's already been realized. But uh, you've had, so in other words, you had 35% growth in the first nine months of the year, down to about 30% growth, still growth. Uh, but what I love about this company is the margins uh, that they have. And we've got to, unfortunately, what, and that makes this a potentially a little bit harder one to analyze, is the pink that I've highlighted here shows a single one-time large boost in stock-based comp for the CEO. Little bit of a problem here because it makes it look like Trade Desk almost lost money. They didn't. They made about 16 mil, but it's a substantial plummet from the 2021 60 mil in rev, uh, or, or net income rather. If in the fourth quarter growth stays stable at above 25%, and we get that stock-based comp out, we should see some pretty good margins at the company. 
which is exciting to me, especially since their platform operations are basically their, their uh, uh, margin, right? That's for gross margin. So if we look at $70 million in expenses out of 394 million revenue, you're only talking about 17% in expenses, which means you've got about an 82% gross profit margin. OpEx, grew at uh, about 44%. So we want, in terms of sales and marketing, so we want to keep an eye on potentially sales and marketing growing faster than Rev. So this is not a risk-free company, but it's definitely a company that I, I think has upside from here. Uh, and again, no guarantees, but it's one I'm excited about. So uh, these are some of the things that fundamentally I'm, I'm uh, watching and uh, curious to know your so thoughts. So uh, leave me some comments. Now, uh, you know, question here, what about Google? Uh, you know, Google, Google, I think, uh, again, great exposure for uh, for what you've got uh, to YouTube, big fan of that. However, YouTube revenue actually sh suffered a decline in the last Google earnings report. Now, we're going to get Google earnings today. So hopefully it goes back. That's what I'm going to be looking for in the Google earnings is I'm going to be looking for a return to YouTube advertising growth. Take a look at this. This on screen right here is Google's uh, ad network uh, income. And you could actually see that in 2021, you got $7.2 million for YouTube ads, but only $7 billion uh, in 2022, which is a decline of about 1.85%. Google search still grew, but then again, Google search is where they're suffering from the uh, Department of Justice inquiry into, into their models, right? So, and you've got Google Cloud growth slowing. So these are some things to pay attention to for Google. Uh, again, not a pure play advertising play. Uh, so uh, again, watching. I think the next earnings calls, especially the Google one today, will be very insightful and, and, and those will be things that I'm paying attention to. But some of my thoughts there on the advertising sector. Hopefully that on advertising was uh, insightful or interesting to you. All right, now, Let's take a list or let's take a check here of what we've got going on in the pre-market. So let's see here, pre-market, pre-market, pre-market. Uh, someone here says, I'm patiently waiting for a good entry into the triple short QQQ, nice. Uh, why not AMD? I love AMD. I think AMD actually did well. Uh, they did very well on their earnings. Uh, they are, uh, let's see, I went through AMD this morning. Let me see what my notes were on AMD. MD, 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 ah, that's right. I looked at their earnings call. I'll show you AMD in just a moment. So some of the things that I liked about AMD, here's, uh, let's talk AMD. Okay, let me write that down really quick. One sec. Okay, AMD. Uh, one of the things I liked about here was the strong gross margins that they're expecting to actually grow in the second half of the year. Now, I thought that was interesting because if you are investing in the chips market, I think you kind of have another probably four months or so to go before it's like off to the races for chips. Now, I'm a big fan that chips are going to have massive pricing power going into the rest of the year. Uh, sorry, the rest of the decade. And so I'm a big fan of creating as many chip positions as I can. I like investing in ASML because they manufacture the DUV and EUV, the ultraviolet machines that actually engrave advanced microchips. Then you've got uh, uh, Taiwan Semiconductors that has 90% plus share market share of the actual manufacturing of advanced microchips. ASML has about, uh, ASML is 90 plus percent market share of the advanced uh, lithography machines, which make these advanced chips. S Taiwan Semiconductors has 92% of the actual production market share. 
Uh, and then you look at companies that actually design the chips like AMD, Nvidia, and then you can even look at potentially a value play like Intel, which not only designs, but then also manufactures. They could be a value chop though, so you have to be careful on that one. Uh, they're either gonna make it or they're not. <laughs> and, and the next few years will tell if they'll be able to transition. I think they're gonna get back to EPS growth by about the second half of this year. And to me, that's actually reiterated by what AMD tells us about how they expect strong uh, gross margins to actually grow going going into the uh, the second half of the year. Let me see what else they wrote here. So demand is slowed based on macro environments. Revenue has declined. Uh, however, they see uh, a large demand for data center chips, especially their Alveo X3, which is for uh, banks and being able to trade with lower latency. They're seeing substantial supply chain improvements. Remember, they invested a billion dollars into stronger supply chains, so that way they could be prepared when that PC demand comes back uh, to really blow up. I'm a big believer of that. They expect the PC market to still be down 10% this year. And uh, that's okay, because in my opinion, as long as you've got everybody believing, oh, the chip sector sucks, the PC market sucks, what these companies are doing is they're investing in substantially better supply chains. And, and the chip sector is probably my biggest bet uh, out of everything, is, is I, I'm a big believer in the chip pricing sector for, the 20, uh, for this next decade here. So if I really had to align my investment thesis, it would probably be chips, uh, chips and autonomy, uh, so uh, again, ASML, TSMC, NVIDIA, AMD, uh, a little bit of Intel. It's kind of like a hedge to TSMC. Uh, Tesla, obviously, Apple's in there. Uh, that's sort of your chips exposure. But then you can also get advertising exposure through exposure through a pure play like T um, uh, Trade Desk. But then you also want to get energy exposure through plays like uh, Enphase, Solar Edge, Generac, through battery storage. Uh, they also are, in, to some degree, like Enphase, a chips play because they use uh, ASICs and, and, and custom uh, chip work, which AMD also provides a lot of value to. And then all of that also benefits from the AI revolution. I mean, in my opinion, what I've just described is, is again, not personal financial advice for you, but it's the perfect uh, pricing power portfolio. Uh, it, like what I've just described it, in my opinion. And I'm a big fan of PP, okay? I love it when PPs go up. Uh, pricing power is going up at companies just makes me so excited. I get so happy. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, a uh, big, 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 big fan. So uh, somebody's asking, uh, you know, I, I can't talk specific, obviously, funds here, but uh, uh, I will say there was, uh, when, when, a, when an ETF goes through their very first quarter, at the end of the very first quarter, they have to be in compliance with certain ratios where you can't exceed 5% for many positions. Like most of the positions are not allowed to exceed 5%. So unfortunately, that means certain stocks that an ETF might believe in, they actually have to sell in the first quarter, at the end of the first quarter, which, which you know, we just had an end of first quarter. Uh, even though they don't want to. So that's sort of like a regulatory force sale, potentially. Again, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about specific uh, ETFs uh, right now in, in, in this stream, but uh, that, that could be what potentially uh, you're seeing if you're seeing an ETF that you believe in rebalance to 5% in multiple different stocks. It's a one-time thing and, and it should never have to happen again, uh, which, which is good. But then again, you know, the governments have, 
very specific regulations and, and they make you do things that you oftentimes don't want to do. <laughs> but that's okay. They're designed to protect investors and there are reasons for them. Why certain things exist, I don't know. You just have to follow the rules sometimes and you just have to go, okay, it is what it is. Tell me what the rules are and then that's how we'll play the game. <laughs> All right, checking the market. Uh, we are sitting at... <sighs> This, okay, l listen, if you are making money off Bed Bath and Carvana, I'm very, very happy for you because Carvana almost doubled in the last two days. Please, 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 set a stop loss. Whatever you will do, if you are yeeting calls and you are making bank right now on Carvana, please set losses, loss limits, okay? It's very simple to do, very simple. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, set, set what I call a trailing loss, okay? That could potentially maximize your profit because what you could do is you could say, hey, if it sells off 10%, then sell, right? And then that way, if it keeps running, that 10% runs up with you. So set a trailing stop loss. That's what you want to do for, for something like that because it's gonna, like, Carvana is not worth this. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised like if I were Carvana right now, you know what my corporate staff would be drafting right now? I would be, I guarantee you, this is a consideration. The executive staff at Carvana would be stupid not to do what I'm about to tell you, okay? They just had their market cap like triple. They would be stupid not to have their corporate staff right now drafting a massive share dump. In other words, hey, let's go issue you know, $700 million of new shares, uh, you know, flood the order book, flood the market with available shares, end up seeing a mega crash. I see it coming. No idea how far it'll go. Make your money in the meantime. Just be very careful. That's all I want to say. Uh, da, 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 da. All right, we're going to go over to the course member live stream in just a moment. I'll answer another question or two, and then we're going to jump to the course member live stream. Uh, keep in mind, we did extend the coupon code to uh, Friday, February 3rd. It's the last one this weekend. I'm removing all that stuff, all the banners and stuff. It's all coming down. We're getting rid of uh, the, the couponing. You guaranteed get the best price. Uh, if you want to email us and, and uh, explain, you know, what it's going to take to convince you to join, do so by uh, emailing Kevin at meetkevin.com. We'll get back to you today. We'd love to have you as part of the groups. Uh, you want a custom bundle, whatever, talk to us. And uh, a lot of people are emailing us. I think this morning, I, th I think we're uh, like 50 emails backed up here. So we got a little bit of work to do, but, uh, but that's okay. We'll catch up. So if you haven't gotten a reply yet, stand by. But again, uh, we've pushed that out to February 3rd which actually does mean there's a chance that I have to dye my hair green, which I didn't realize when I made that bet, but I made a bet that if Tesla hit $200 by the time my coupon actually expires, uh, I will have to dye my hair green. And right now, Tesla is at, at 187. So right now we are $13 away from meet Kevin having green hair again. Uh, at the same time, you've got Trade Desk up 7.7%, which is really incredible. You've got, uh, let's see here, Roku. Uh, I hate Roku, <laughs> man. <laughs> Sorry, I've got problems with Roku, but that's okay. Uh, it's another advertising play, but uh, they're up doing very well as well, up over 6%. You've got Redfin up 6%, back at nine bucks. That's, that was their pandemic low. You've got Matterport almost at $4 again. I, I'm really excited for the next Matterport earnings call because Matterport is a company that I think 
will actually lose a substantial amount of, of, of signups. Like I think they're going to miss on signups, but I think they're going to go profitable again this year. And they, they could be a really big play in, in the longer term. So longer term, I don't hold any Matterport right now. Personally, and this is just me being like transparent here, I kind of want Matterport to like have a terrible earnings report so I can buy the crap out of it. Okay, just, just full transparency. That's <laughs> uh, And everything else, go to the moon. So uh, Corsair, I don't know. You know, I haven't done, I haven't looked into Corsair for a while. Uh, if you're holding Matterport, uh, you know, hey, it'll be a buy the dip opportunity for you. <laughs> don't do that to me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'll hold through with that. <laughs> hey, you know what? There's entirely the chance, and this happens with small caps. There's entirely the chance that the sucker is going to jump 20% on earnings, right? So, uh, you know, you have no idea. It's just a total bet. But I'd rather be transparent about uh, about the bets. <laughs> so uh, does Tesla have to stay? No, it just has to hit 200. That's all. That's I, I, at least that's what I think I tweeted. Hold on, let me let me let me look at the tweet really quick. So Twitter real meet Kevin Tesla Tesla green hair of 200. Uh, if Tesla breaks 200 dollars, there it is. If Tesla breaks $200 before my next coupon code expires, I will dye my hair green. It doesn't say it has to hold it. And this was, I, I posted that before earnings. It was at like $120, okay? <laughs> I'm like, that was before earnings uh, at 120 bucks. The thing would have to have rallied like 80 something percent. It's insane. Uh, anyway, okay. Hopping over to the course member live stream. Would love to see you there. I'm going to go to the bathroom really quick, and then I'm going to hit live. So I'll see you there in like, uh, I don't know, 60 seconds or so. Thanks so much. We will see you very soon. Goodbye.